0: Tuttle Capital and Rex shares have joined forces to introduce a groundbreaking brand, T-Rex. These leveraged and inverse single-stock ETFs are making waves in the market. Currently, they stand as the exclusive single-stock trading products, offering both two-times and negative two-times leverage. But what sets them apart is their affiliation with the ever-popular Tesla and NVIDIA stocks. TSLT and TSLZ provide you with two-times and negative two-times exposure to Tesla, while NVDX and NVDQ offer the same for NVIDIA. Take control of your investments with confidence and precision by exploring T-Rex's two-times leverage and negative two-times inverse leverage single-stock ETFs. Dive deeper into TSLT, TSLZ, and NVDX, NVDQ at rexshares.com. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, which can be found on rexshares.com. Please read the prospectuses carefully before you invest. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. The fund is not suitable for all investors. The fund is designed to be utilized only by sophisticated investors, such as traders and active investors, employing dynamic strategies. Investors in the fund should understand the risks associated with the use of Leverage or leveraged inverse strategies and intend to actively monitor and manage their investments distributed by foresight fund services llc etf prime is hosted by nature racing president of investment advisory firm the etf store this program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment
1: advice investing in etfs involves risk including potential loss of principal Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit etfstore.com for more information.
0: Now it's time for ETF Prime
2: All right, joining me will be none other than Eric Valchunas, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg. And I think most of you already know, Eric is simply one of the best in the business covering ETFs. Plus, I always say, there is nobody in ETFs better at coming up with Uh, colorful metaphors and analogies in Eric. I honestly don't know where or how he comes up with this stuff. I'm always so jealous. But this is going to be fun. Uh, We have a whole host of topics to get into, including Eric's top ETF story of 2023. You'll hear what his favorite new ETF launch was this year. We're going to talk about the rise of active ETFs, and actually how that might not uh, necessarily be everything that it appears. Um, Let's see. Uh, If you know Eric and uh, I, you know we're also going to discuss the potential death of ESG ETFs. We'll get into Vanguard's continued ETF success. We're going to touch on options-based ETFs like uh, JEPI. We're really going to try and uh, cover it all. And yes, we will talk spot Bitcoin ETFs, but that'll just be a small piece. So uh, don't worry. The idea here is truly to go around the world of ETFs with uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas. Can't wait for that. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Zeno Mercer, Senior Research Analyst at Vetify. And you may recall, Vetify acquired the Robo Global suite of indices earlier this year. Zeno came over to Vetify as part of that. And as you might expect, Zeno is an expert in robotics and artificial intelligence, but also healthcare tech, uh, blockchain. He's immersed in all of this stuff. And so this week, we're going to focus on just one of these areas, uh, but it's an area that's been a clear driver in the financial markets this year, and that's artificial intelligence. So let's chat with Zeno now.
0: Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. The cyclicality is kind of being upended by those nearshoring and rearshoring
3: trends that we're seeing in America. We've got the enabling technologies and the most promising applications, of those technologies.
2: Zeno, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me.
3: Great to be here today. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing fantastic, and and look, so listeners have become uh, very familiar with a growing stable of experts over at Vetify. I've had numerous of your colleagues on the podcast uh, covering everything from the energy sector to crypto, all flavors of uh, thematic ETFs, and probably everything in between. I, I feel like Vetify. Uh, has an expert in every category now. (laughs) But this is, of course, your ETF Prime debut. And so I'd love to have you start by just uh, introducing yourself and offering some quick background on your path to uh, Vetify.
3: Yeah, sure. And and we certainly do have coverage in in many areas. So I'm I'm Zeno Mercer, a senior research analyst here at Vetify. Uh, And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I've been working with Robo for over five years now going back to the launch of the, the Think Index, actually, back in 2018. Um, and, you know, we joined forces earlier this year with Vetify. With and, and long story short, I've always been somewhat interested in technology, working you know both in the financial sector, fund the funds, and also integrated into a couple tech companies and startups where we were actually implementing AI back, you know, going back to 2015, uh, more, more primitive forms of artificial intelligence, if you will. Um, and so... So I guess the, the long story short here is that um, we we've got you know an incredible team. Um, we we cover, as you mentioned, robotics. We launched uh, the Think Index in 2018 and, and H Tech as well. And yeah, we 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 just um, they're they're totally separate fields. Uh, a lot of people like to bunch them up together, but uh, yeah, just just truly fascinating to see how fast the the demand the curve and interest is has pivoted since the launch of ChatGPT just uh almost a year ago
2: okay so that's actually a good segue here because as i noted at the top we are going to focus on artificial intelligence this week and i like this topic because i think as we look back on 2023 uh, ai has clearly been one of the biggest stories in the financial markets right especially earlier this year i think you could say it was almost uh mania i mean we saw the chip makers run extremely hard Obviously, all of this helped boost the largest tech companies. I honestly think AI uh, drove a lot of the optimism in the markets overall, despite some pretty good reasons to maybe be a a bit more pessimistic or downtrodden coming into the year. But let's start bigger picture and then we can get into uh, the ETF world and perhaps look ahead as well. Just offer some context on what we've seen this year around AI in in the current state of play. You mentioned chat GBT. What, what has stood out to you?
3: Right. You know, it's, it's a. I guess it would make sense to kind of pause and reflect on where, where things have come from. Um, you know, we, COVID really accelerated a lot of digitalization um, across enterprise, individuals, consumers. There was a massive, actually, you know, people moved into homes and bought lots of peripherals and new phones and laptops. And there was kind of this, like, wave that it actually – we had, you know, not many people remember – there was, we led to a chip shortage. There was a lot of supply chain issues. Um, going into 2022, we saw chip makers, including NVIDIA, uh, having a terrible year. Around this time last year, I think NVIDIA was down maybe 50% or so. I think they ended up the year around minus 40%. So uh, keep in mind that a lot of the growth this year has been, you know, a bit of a rebound effect from that. Um, and, and so, yes, there's a lot of interest in AI. We're seeing... Every organization, Fortune 500, looking to deploy artificial intelligence. Governments have mandated it as their top priority. We're having security summits around the globe. Uh, the U.K. recently held one. We have executive orders. And there's a lot of attention here for good reason because we're actually seeing impact, and increasingly we're going to see the, the digital and physical world blend, and there needs to be lots of guardrails, safety, security, you know, uptime, all of these components that, that come together. You, if you just have AI by itself sitting in an isolated ecosystem, that's great. It can be used as a knowledge base. But when you get to that deployment level and you have to, you know, get regulators involved and explain how processes are being run for bias elimination and safety, there's a lot of components to come into play that, um, you know, just kind of comprises this larger ecosystem that, that really, you know, we're seeing, as you mentioned this year, um, you know this gold rush into uh, training you know GPUs. so we've seen a lot of the semi players win from that. We've seen clouds seeing an acceleration uh, that are involved in that networking architecture. Um, the next layer looks a little different than that
2: with uh, chat Gbt, that's only been out for about a year, right?
3: Yes, yeah, uh, it came out. I mean the the original kind of chat, you know chat gbt. G- on using GPT-3 for the public, publicly available was November 30th, 2022, and so within that time, I think there's now hundreds of millions of users. I'm not sure the exact number. There's been lots of copycats, and I don't mean copycats as in identical or, or skins. Like there are other players that are working on, um, you know, building out their own LLMs, whether it's from Meta or you know, there's lots of private companies that have gotten backing from Google and and Amazon and and and, and others, and so. It, it, there's definitely a lot of attention into this, this training in, in um, large language model phase right now to get a great model, to get use cases built out, and, and actually start getting you know, money flowing in for these use cases uh, for, because it, it, it's very expensive to train and, and, and operate.
2: It's funny you mention copycats. I'm definitely not close enough uh, to to this stuff, though I think I know enough to be dangerous. And I'm obviously familiar with ChatGPT, but I keep seeing this Grok pop up, I think primarily because I'm out on uh, Twitter or X where Elon Musk resides. He's behind that, right?
3: Yeah, so, so Elon's obviously had ambitions in artificial intelligence and in you know many different leading pioneering areas of the world for for many years. In fact, was involved in the founding of OpenAI. Um so and and he left several years ago before it switched to the the hybrid for profit, nonprofit model that it is now. Yeah, so Grok, let's call it an M V P. Um, he was just getting something out there and obviously I'm also on Twitter, so you know, you're gonna he's got that his own Elon echo chamber where he's able to boost that, um, you know, it's, it's a chatbot. It's not doing anything multimodal yet, which is where things really start to get inter- interesting, where it can, you know, interact and understand context in real time using computer vision. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, maybe he'll have something there, but right now it's not necessarily a contender for a game changer by any means.
2: So, Zeno, from an ETF perspective, and we're not going to drill down into uh, too much detail this week on this, but for investors who might be considering AI, how do you think they should approach investing in this space? Are there certain products you would highlight, any particular considerations? I I just feel like AI is such a uh, broad concept, right? It cuts across so many different parts of the economy. It can impact individual companies in so many different ways. How do you think ETF investors should be approaching investing in AI?
3: Right. So I think this year you've obviously were a winner if you were all in on Nvidia. So up to this point, um, that's that's clear. Uh, I would say going forward, obviously we've seen that valuation uplift and it's sitting at a premium. Uh, so so there's there's obviously some there's a couple camps of, or theories, if you will. You've got some that are looking at kind of the big tech players to maybe winners take all. Um, you have the other camps where you've got the ecosystem and cloud and big data players and components and cybersecurity that can come in and provide value and actually are necessary for, for proper deployment and utilization, which is, you know, in our thesis, the next layer of AI. Um, and so kind of if you, if you bundle it, we've got, you know, we look at it as subsectors. So we have infrastructure and applications. Um, and so we see, we see those companies, you know, we've seen semiconductors start to pick up Obviously, that's super important. We have government regulation around not just the semi players themselves, like Nvidia, but even the semi equipment manufacturers. I mean, this is a mission-critical component of society now, whether whether being used for AI or not. There's other use cases, of course. Um, so I would I would say to investors that are looking at artificial intelligences, you know, a you know, kind of looking at Magnificent Seven. I think they've had a lot of attention and you know, whether it's just percentage of waiting in the S&P and the queues or, or what have you, you know, they're, they're facing their own set of potential issues, right? They, we could see a wave of deplatformization. I mean, that's a real possibility right now. What I mean by that is, you know, Alphabet, for example, has been, um, you know, probably, you know, Google, let's, let's say Google, has been, you know, we've been in the Google era since 1999. We had 50% Internet penetration in the U.S. by 2001. And really a lot of people have accessed and, and interacted with information using Google and other services like that. They've paid money to be the player and the face of the Internet. And now people have more options, or they're going to continue to have more options, more personalization. And so a lot of these tech platforms and operating systems we've, we've kind of lived with could change. Now, now that's a risk factor. Like, opportunity-wise, um, you know, we see, we see opportunities in business process automation. And those, these are companies that are helping either directly Operate as a product or service using AI, or they're, they're major contributors for existing organizations, Fortune 500, um, government organizations to to use AI and deploy it. You know, you can have consulting, uh, you have e-commerce players, cloud providers. There's a, there's a bunch of bunch of um, supporting stack that goes into this. You know, if you call, consider it an AI iceberg, if you will.
2: But when you look specifically at the ETF space, so you mentioned. The semiconductors, obviously, there's ways to play that directly in ETFs. The Magnificent mm-hmm. Seven and, and some of the larger quote unquote FANG stocks, there's ways to play that. But if if you drill down and look at what I'm going to classify as thematic ETFs, obviously, I know Robo Global um, has some options here. Uh, there, there's a more broad ETF in, in Robo itself, Robotics and AI. Mm-hmm. Um, Global X has a product, Bots, which is again, Robotics and Artificial Intelligence. Um, but but then again, Robo also has T H N Q, which is more specific to artificial intelligence. There's ETFs like Chat from Roundhill, which really focuses on generative AI. Any tips to investors as they parse through that that category if they want to play AI?
3: Yeah, I would I would say look at your existing allocation um, and see where you have allocation already. See what the weightings are. Um, see what areas that they're leaning into. Are they leaning into like a specific trend or are they looking at kind of the broader AI picture, um, you know, including autonomous vehicles, and computer vision and, you know, the overlap in the robotics? I think, I think those are some consist- considerations that make sense there. Um, you know, we, you know, looking at, you know, revenue purity of the companies that are, that are part of it, where the companies are investing, the market leadership within you know, some of these companies are are in smaller arenas than, for example, an NVIDIA, but obviously a relative gain there is is worth just as much. And, and the rest of the ecosystem really is trading at a much, you know, a, a discount compared to, you know, an NVIDIA or, or Microsoft, if you will.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing I would point out here, too, is that robotics and artificial intelligence aren't necessarily the same thing. That doesn't mean there's not some crossover there, um, but... Those are two different categories that can react differently to, uh, to, to the various drivers out there. Um, Zeno, as we look ahead, we, we have a few minutes left here. Talk about the outlook moving forward. So we already noted the hype earlier this year, but I, I think it's clear AI is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so as you look ahead to 2024, what are a few key drivers you're watching for? Or, or what does the next stage of AI look like?
3: Uh, we'll we'll definitely be watching, you know, investments and moves by big players, you know, Microsoft, OpenAI, to see how that starts to impact the rest of the ecosystem. We'll be following um, the uptick in in large orders and utilization by enterprises and corporations, whether it's in financial services, manufacturing, healthcare. Uh, you know, the U.S. government's already been looking at deploying money into using AI for many years now. We expect that to trickle up. I mean, ultimately, I mean, as you pointed out, robotics and AI are very different. They have different cyclicalities. One's got you know a lot of exposure to you know consumer manufacturing in China. The other is a little bit more global right now, and, and that's AI. And and we'll we'll be looking for you know Microsoft, for example, expects to get 10 billion ARR from Copilot. So just watching how people you know society adapts to using AI. I mean, I think you're going to have kids that that are growing up with AI in their pocket, and and I think that's incredible, and and that's just how they're going to get used to the world. I mean, that is their world, and and so it's it's important to look at, you know, where do we head next? Uh, We've we've been holding on the phones for a long time. I think we're going to be looking more into augmented reality and and hearing and integrated um, artificial intelligence that's a little bit more seamless in the way we've been using technology, obviously interested in, um, you know, not just, Reducing administrative costs in healthcare, but also, um, you know, personalizing and adding elements of, of of better healthcare and diagnostics in precision medicine. So that's you know, drug discovery to personalized insights. Effectively, everyone should kind of always have their own ongoing clinical trial ongoing. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, this massive like ordeal. And I, I think there's a lot of benefits to society that we're going to start to see. So there's kind of like the investment standpoint, and then there's also the the other side where it's, you know, this is just going to become a bigger part of GDP in society, whether GDP goes up or whether GDP goes down globally. I think that's an important thing to realize is that it's it's coming in every facet of, of industry.
2: Well, Zeno, really enjoyed the conversation this week. Great having you on the uh, podcast. I thought that was a very nice overview of AI and AI-related ETFs. I am 100% sure we will be doing this again in the future because, as I said, AI is not going anywhere. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. That was Zeno Mercer, Senior Research Analyst at Vetify
3: calling
1: all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at ExchangeETF.com.
0: Diversification is critical even in the most normal of markets. Is your portfolio diversified enough to navigate today's unusual markets? Fortunately, Vetify is bringing together thought leaders and industry experts to discuss alternatives in the coming Alternative Symposium. Register for free at Vetify.com.
2: Joined by someone who probably needs no introduction to the ETF Prime audience, Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg. And if for some reason you're not already familiar with Eric, he co hosts Bloomberg's ETF Focus TV show, ETF IQ. He co hosts Bloomberg's ETF Focus podcast, Trillions. He's written two books, The Institutional ETF Toolbox and The Bogle Effect. I highly recommend both of those for all types of investors. And I'm actually trying to get Eric to write a third book on this uh, Bitcoin ETF saga, which I'm sure we'll get into. Eric is now on the line with me from uh, Philadelphia. Eric, so great to uh, connect, and thank you for joining me.
1: Great to to be here. And I always am curious what what song you're going to bring me in on, and that was perfect A, I'm a huge Pixies fan. I actually saw them at Vanderbilt University's gym back in high school when I lived in Tennessee for two years, uh, right after their last album. They were a little before my time, but I caught them right before they broke up. Um, And that song is obviously one of their greats, but kind of, I think, taps into how I've been feeling lately covering this Bitcoin saga. There are times when I feel like I'm losing my mind a bit. Uh, There's so many elements and you know, sort of little uh, like trapdoors that you fall down, and little underworlds. The whole thing is wild. So good choice today.
2: Yeah, I uh, I missed yesterday. I was offline in the afternoon, and I saw all this uh, stuff going around about oh, iShares oh, oh, oh. XR. What what happened? Like honestly, I I was offline, uh, missed the whole thing.
1: Okay, so somebody, you know how the, um, uh, iShares filed a legal name for an Ethereum trust last week? Yeah, and somebody caught that. And I confirmed it with BlackRock that that was true. And then that day, they filed, or the next day, they filed the 19 before. And so all that was legitimate. And somebody had just caught it on this Delaware Corporation site where you go to um, make a name legal before you file. It's actually like almost like the precursor to a filing. So someone had the wherewithal to like scrape this site, I guess. So that was legit. We all remember that. Now they have an ether future filed. The same exact. look on the site for an XRP ETF, um, or trust rather. So I went in, typed it in, it's on the site and it's filed by the same guy. Who's an executive at BlackRock. Everything's the same. I thought somebody just like, uh, doctored a, uh, a screenshot, but it's literally on the site. So I was like, is this real? You know, again, where is this real? Where's my mind? You know, <laughs> is this real? what is real, mate? I don't even know anymore. So I call BlackRock. And they deny it. They said, and you can say a spokesperson said it's false. So I, I put out, hey, this is false. And apparently that, and I think James's tweet, caused the XRP spike to come back down. It went up 7% and then back down when it was confirmed that it's not true. And then all of these maniacs got mad at me, and they still think I'm lying. And they, I guess they just were so bummed that it wasn't true. They think that either I made it up or that BlackRock told me that. To like use me just to buy some time, or you know, uh, the whole thing is crazy. Most of the Bitcoin people have been pretty, uh, um, cordial. This XRP crowd is a whole different ballgame. I mean, this is like, like I said, this is like, um, you know, walking down a city block and you go into the wrong alley. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, you know, like I said, there's trapdoors everywhere. Uh, they got real, like, angry at me, and um, I, I, my conscience is clean. I did nothing wrong. The whole thing's false. But the idea that some whack job went in there and actually forged BlackRock's name and stuff just to get a pop in this, uh, you know, XRP token or um, uh, crypto is pretty crazy. Like, BlackRock is going to look into this. Uh, this guy could be in trouble or girl, I guess. But it's whoever did this is it's a whole like. This, this is part of what Gems, it, and the, What bugs me is this kind of justifies a bit of what Gens was talking about with fraud and manipulation and hucksters. And, like, this feeds into that. I still think Bitcoin, obviously, you and I are both for it. But this does, like, justify a little bit what he's saying. And I've largely been trying to sort of, you know, be ag- against all the caution because I do think an ETF would be the best way to access it. But this this isn't good. This is a bad thing. This is – I'd almost argue this is worse than the Cointelegraph fake news because someone literally went in there and like fake BlackRock's name. It's just I think mean, person could be fined or go to jail. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how, how it all happened. There's no I don't really have the real story yet, but um, we'll see if it comes out.
2: Yeah, no question. Sounds like for sure a legal issue for whoever filed that uh, fraudulent trust. But. I think to your point, and we can come back to this later. James uh, Safer, your colleague, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There is no more passionate crowd on Twitter or X than the crypto crowd, and that passion can be used for both good and bad. Right? Uh, we we've seen both sides of it. Uh, it just it's amazing something like that comes out. Uh, if this was any other segment of the market, you wouldn't see near that type of uh, traction and interest. Uh, but in any event, no. let, let's come back yeah. to that. I do yeah. want to talk spot Bitcoin ETFs and all that. I'm afraid that if we get into that now, we're not going to have yeah. time for the
1: other areas, right? It, so it, a Half an hour will go by.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, so let's do this. I have several ETF topics I want to ask you about. Um, I also want to weave in a few open-ended questions for you, which I, I think are right in your wheelhouse, and we can see where those take us. But I did bill your appearances going around the world of ETFs, so we need to make sure to do that and not focus on a, on Bitcoin ETFs. And then I'll be sure to save us some time at the uh, the the end for that topic. And so I want to start with a few stories I was actually discussing with Vetify's Dave Nottig last week. All of these uh, I know you have interesting takes on. And so the first is Jeppy. The J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. And I would say really uh, all of these covered call or options overlay ETFs. I told Dave, I think this entire category is a bubble. I I think there are way too many of these ETFs coming to market. And even when you look at JEPI, which that's clearly here to stay, that's not going anywhere. I am shocked by the amount of money it's taken in this year. Some $13 billion, even though it's underperformed the S&P 500 by about 10%. Now, that said, I like your take on, on this category. You call these uh, ETFs boomer candy, which, by the way, Eric, I said at the top, I don't know where you come up with this stuff.
1: Well, <laughs> I love it. But... Well, to be fair, that one I listed um, from – I got it from uh, someone at Simplify. Um, but I was – the reason they brought it up is someone in their shop used that term. But I was tell, telling that person that um, – I, I, I used to use the phrase nervous boomers. Because just like the drug industry, pharma, if you can, like, make a drug that does something for a boomer, you're going to get money because they have all the money. So if you're in the financial industry and you can, like, calm the nerves of a nervous boomer, um, you're going to get money. It just seems obvious that you would make products to satiate the nerves of boomers so they can sleep better at night. And to me, Jeffy does that because you get this – the yield buffers your downturn because that, that income acts as a little bit of a buffer on the downturn. You obviously give up your upside, a lot of it, to be honest, um, in Jeppy's case. And I think that's a fine trade-off. Boomers are willing to make that melt up upside. I will trade that away to give me a little protection from the downside. So and as an advisor, Nate, I'm sure you know this, that the JP Morgan brand sounds kind of like top shelf, like like almost like the the kind of stuff that only the, the special people get. And so I think you got this JP Morgan brand, you've got the yield. Uh, and you've got the low fee. Um, It it all adds up to a a really sellable product, in my opinion.
2: But take away the J.P. Morgan brand for a moment. So what about all these uh, non-J.P. Morgan issuers who are offering covered call ETFs? I think you had a tweet on this. It was like McDonald's versus McDowell's. Do you think think these are going to make it? Because again, I I feel like there's just too many of these products out there. I hear what you're saying in terms of the attractiveness to boomers. I just wonder if if, again, this, this space is oversaturated. It probably
1: is. I mean, you know, every couple of years we see a craze. And to me, this this equity income covered call thing is a bit of a craze. Reminds me of currency hedged ETS uh, about 10 years ago. And remember, everybody launched currency hedged ETFs. It got to the point where it was like, let's do currency hedge plus multi-factor. Currency hedge plus low vol plus EM. You know, they were adding like three or four things together. Most of those are gone. That said, BXJ and HEDJ and, you know, uh, some of the iShares ones still exist. And when people want that trade, that ETF's there. It's got plenty of liquidity. I think the same thing will happen here. I, I think JEPI e and JEPQ, Jeff Jeff Q honestly, you know, I even think is more impressive. It seems like you get a little more of that juice because the upside in the Qs is better. And the uh, Sharpe ratio on this thing is, is really good. Um, and there's still the yield factor, and it's still cheap. But uh, Q is almost like the... Uh, uh, bigger, quicker, faster, younger brother of Jeppy. because I think Jeppy one thing is the, the lack of juice. You know, the, the, SM, it, it really lagged by a good amount. And remember over the years, there were these hedge products have, have come out over the years and mostly people don't like them because it's just too hard for people to see a rally of say 18% and you get like three. That's just too much. Whereas most people like, okay, I'll get 10% of the rally. I could live with that. Jeppy I don't think caught enough, but to your point, people still keep buying it. So we'll see if that lasts. But the idea of doing covered call, I think at least as long as the rates are high, right, you can get 5% in money markets. So therefore, you got to do something extra for higher yield. So you can get 10, 11% in some of these. So if rates, you got to do something more than 5%, obviously. So as long as rates are high, these, you know, the high yield should attract some people. And then again, boomers with all this money and they just, I don't know, they don't want to be just in cash. It just seems like they're going to hang around for a while until the regime changes or the environment. Um, like if the Fed lowers rates, I think that's the, the sort of kryptonite to these. Uh, but if they, you know, if we stay in this higher rate environment, I, I think they should have a decent shelf life. But we'll see. But I think some will close. You know, some of the ones that copied and came like, uh, you know, recently, um, you know, some of them will, will bite the dust uh, over time.
2: Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, Another story I covered last week that is somewhat related to JEPI's success is your uh, observation that the rise of active ETFs isn't everything that it appears to be, that when you start uh, sort of peeling back the layers and looking at the products, taking in real money, it's not traditional stock-picking ETFs that are finding success. It's what you called solution-oriented funds, like we were just talking about with these covered call ETFs. And so I'd love to have you expand on that because we keep hearing about uh, this rise of active ETFs. But do you think this is a little bit of smoke and mirrors?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I think um, if you look at, okay, so first of all, DSA and Avantis is very active light. They they hold a lot of beta. So right, right off the bat, that's not really like majorly active. But at the end of the day, even if they're systematic, uh, there is an active element to it. And, but... Even if you, we all agree that's active, a lot of the money into those funds, especially DFA, seems to have come from the mutual funds. The mutual funds have seen you know, a, enough outflows that it could fund all of their ETFs. I'm not saying it's a one-for-one one shot, but a lot of the people who have seen outflows, Capital Group and DFA in particular, from their mutual funds, those are the people seeing inflows in the ETFs. So let's just assume a good chunk of that is BYOA, meaning it's just one client moving over to the new format. Well, that's not really organic interest. And then where there is organic flows, like a Jeppy or the buffer products, most of those are active in name only. Like you could probably indexify all that, even though Hamilton Reiner does a great job managing Jepi, and there are some active decisions in there, and I think they have it active just to, make, just to execute a little better. Arguably, it, it, you know what it's going to do. It's not active in the traditional sense of Peter Lynch walking into the mall and seeing like a line in Nike and being like, I'm buying that stock. That's like the sort of traditional active manager that the media is like always talking about when they talk about the return of active, that thing, that, that special person who has like their pulse on society and stocks, that's largely gone. It, it's a myth because DFA and advances are largely systematic. i call that quantitative active. And again, a lot of it's coming from the mutual funds. Um, Capital group might be, you know, partially holding that old banner. But again, it's that whole thing is dying. I think Kathy Wood was a bright spot, but Kathy Wood had performance that was just, you know, generational. I mean, he, she outperformed every fun for like two years, like a hundred percent of them. And she's a very charismatic figure. So it's possible. We'll get these shooting stars once in a while, but I just think a lot of what is billed as the return of active is actually things that are really rules based. I mean, Jeffy, if Jeffy, if if the guy who ran Jeffy said, "Oh, I I think rates are going to go down. I'm going to go buy a bunch of tech stocks and just like sell all this stuff and stop doing covered call," uh, people will be pissed off. They're not buying it for his thoughts on the Fed. They're buying it for this thing, which is covered call yield, little downside protection, um, and that that he has to do that. So, in a way, Jeffy is not being bought to like beat the market, so to speak. It's being bought more to provide this function or. Um, what would you call that, like a a service, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a myth of the return of active. It's more nuanced. You,
2: you mentioned um, Kathy Wood. That made me think of your beta-adjusted fee demarcation line, which I, I love this. If listeners haven't seen this, go check out Eric's Twitter handle. You can find the chart out there. But I, I think this is spot on and obviously relevant to what we're discussing here. Do you want to explain that concept? Again, I, I love this.
1: Yeah, so if you um, picture a graph... And on the bottom, you have a a fee and on and on the other axis, you have active share. So and then you draw a 45 degree angle. That is the beta adjusted fee demarcation line. In other words, if all the funds above that line do seem to do well, in other words, the further out you go or up the graph is active share, you can charge more. Right. So Kathy Wood is on the upper right because she has high active share, but she charges a lot. But her active share is high enough that it's above that 45-degree angle. But like DFA and Avantis and JEPI have a much lower active share. They're more like 50 60% active share versus Kathy's like 99 They have lower fees. They're all below 40 basis points. So they all kind of live on or above that demarcation line. And we just looked at the 10 most popular active ETFs, and they all kind of live above the line. And then we looked at, and then we took different categories. They like were like, oh, let's just do active value. And, and it, it, that was true there too. And then we did, let's do smart beta value. And it kind of works there too. So the moral of the story is, because Vanguard made beta free, if you're active and you have a lot of beta in your fund, like you look at the holdings, you see Apple and JP Morgan and Google, and you're like, well, you know, that, you could tell that's a beta heavy, as they say, low tracking error fund. Um, you need to charge less money. You need to beta adjust that fee. You, you need to, you, cause I can get beta for free. So just charge me for the active. And I think that's fair. I think, so I think there's going to be a great repricing of all of active. And once they reprice themselves, I think they're going to find a home in the new world, which is good because I don't think we want everything to go passive. But again, this is all part of, um, and you mentioned my books, the second book, the Bogle effect. This is all part of the, the Vanguard effect or the Bogle effect. Um, you know, making beta free is just, Again, it's an explosion in the whole financial apparatus, and activists had to deal with this. And the way they've dealt with it is they either got got to get cheap enough so that they are competitive with the core, which is like a, say, cheap Vanguard fund, or they got to get wild and crazy so they can be a compliment and be hot sauce to, to complement that. Because at the end of the day, even though, uh, you know, bogleheads might be like, well, I can just buy three funds and need nothing else, but a lot of mortal people, <laughs> They might go cheap, core sixty forty, and pay five basis points for all that, which is a great—it's like utopia. But it's boring. You got to wait thirty years and you do nothing. You can people want to have a little fun on top and cure their FOMO, so they would have had, you know, that's where ARC has a longevity, I think, because they're used not for the main money, but for the you know the FOMO itch. Uh, you can have something like, um, you know, even like play with leverage ETFs, have a Robinhood account, uh, thematic ETFs. There's all kinds of, – we're just a single stock that like might not be in the S and P. A lot of things can go in that hot sauce bucket, which we think makes up maybe ten fifteen percent of a portfolio and that's that is good in a way because as an advisor, you know this people uh, want to they
3: just want to do stuff
1: you know it's hard to just sit there for thirty years so I think the hot sauce bucket actually uh, serves a behavioral purpose because it helps you not touch the other eighty five which has to grow like a tree it just it takes years and years for that magic of compounding to kick in so I just think this is the new regime is the modern portfolio, 85 percent cheap, 15 percent hot sauce. And the beta adjusted fee demarcation line is active, recognizing that change. Finally,
2: I think that's all extremely well said. I mean, if I were to summarize this, the bottom line is investors are not going to pay up for closet indexing. Right. If you're going to closet index, it better be cheap. Now, if you have real real active share, you're truly doing something much different than the benchmark, well, we'll fine. You can try to get away with higher fees, but you can't closet index and have higher fees. That's just not going to fly. Well, so so
1: in the 80s and 90s, you had to closet index if you're active because you are literally the money for my kid's education, but because Vanguard came in and made all beta free, uh, that instantly made that closet indexing active irrelevant. So they served a purpose for a while. But what's what's tough on them is now a lot of them are stuck because if they go full Cassie Wood, they're going to lose some of the old boomer clients that actually bought them for the core. And you you can't get crazy if you're somebody's core. So they're kind of stuck being high-cost closet indexing. And if they lower their fee, they're going to take a massive cannibalization hit to the revenue, and a lot of them don't have the stomach for that. So I think – Those are going to just ride the gravy train till it's over. But it might take 20, 30 years. These are giant cash cow mutual funds. um, And I think a lot of those are are just going to ride the train. But for if anybody wants to survive in the new world and get organic flows, I would just use this metaphor. Think of a bag of potato chips or Doritos or whatever. People do not want to pay for the air in the bag. They just want to be charged for the chips. And, you know, sometimes you buy a bag of these chips, you open it and there's like 10 chips in there and it's like 70 percent puffy air at the top. And you feel jipped off, and so I, I just I would use that metaphor. Just charge people for the active. All
2: right, I do want to make sure uh, we save a little bit of time for crypto ETFs, and I knew I was being ambitious with the uh, list of topics I want to cover. So here, here's what I want to do, Eric. Let's go rapid fire on a variety of topics here. So I think maybe I don't know thirty to sixty seconds uh, each okay. answer here. We'll burn through these, and then we'll get to uh, we'll get to crypto ETF. So. First, I'd love to hear – Dave Nodig and I last week talked about some surprising ETF successes and failures this year. I'd love to have you offer one of each, and and this can be on anything. So is there something that happened in ETFs this year that truly surprised you uh, in a a positive way?
1: I mean, honestly, so I think money market, mutual funds – I know that's not a great answer because it's not an ETF, but this year mutual funds are going to take in more money than ETFs. Now, it's because of money markets (laughs) – But they're going to, they might reach a trillion dollars in flows, Nate. I mean, that is a shocker. I I just never thought we'd see a year where mutual funds took in more. Now, a lot of times we look at flows, we carve out money market funds and we look at X and we look at stock and bond. Those will obviously not outperform ETFs. But to me, that's a shocker. But if you want a ticker, one that I was talking with the team about that we all thought was a a great success, feel good hit of the year is Box, B O Mm S. This is the Alpha Architect one to three year ETF that it imitates um, a, a short-term treasury bill, but it uses options, so there's no distributions. And it's just a nice, quirky little innovation. And it's not even author architects main anything. They're quants, but they just found this little, you know, here, we're going to help you out here with this little thing, because I know you don't like distributions because of the taxation. And it's got half a billion in, in less than a year.
2: So funny. Box is actually one of the uh, stories I highlighted last week, so I completely agree there. Um, what, what about a surprising ETF failure?
1: Uh, you know what I'm. You know what I'm going to pick. It's not surprising. It's disappointing. Is the inverse Jim Cramer ETFs? Uh, yep. Jim. So the it, and I had uh, Matt Tuttle on our podcast, and I I said Matt that he goes long short. So he goes long the ones Cramer wants to short, and short the ones Cramer wants to long. The problem with long short in the ETF market is that no one in ETFs appreciates sharp ratio. Institutions they like that they want low vol sharp ratio. That's how you evaluate a real hedge fund. In ETFs, you need shiny object moments because no one's using this for the core or their alt bucket. This would be a hot sauce play. So he he didn't design it right, in my opinion. He should have had one that goes long his shorts and one that goes short his longs. Then one of those could have caught fire, depending on the market environment, and the beta would have given it some lift. And then Kramer's awfulness at making stock picks would have given it the extra edge, and it might have had like you know doubled the market or something, and it would have caught on. So that would be my disappointment of the year.
2: No, I agree. Again, I highlighted those as well, uh, both the long and short versions. And I feel like maybe Tuttle does a great job of marketing. They could have done a little better job marketing these, and maybe that gets back into the construction. Because any time Kramer had a bad pick, I would have been out on social media and everywhere else trumpeting that bad pick and saying, hey, we're we either short this or, or you know long if it's the inverse um, in the ETF. But, you know. Who, yeah, the problem. The Go problem ahead. is he
1: said he said short Bitcoin, so this thing, I think I think S. Jim bought Bitto, and Bitto went up 100% since then. Yeah. It's a great classic Kramer call. But other things in October, like stocks going down, totally offset all of the run that Bitto was able to contribute. So it's like a wet blanket on these awesome picks. So he did, the, the fund wet blankets itself all the time, and yeah. it, it never has that chance to have you know, uh, a shiny object moment.
2: All right, a few other um, quick topics here. Give us your favorite new ETF in 2023. My
1: favorite new ETF in 20... I'm going to shock you here. I'm going to go with the um, iShares target date funds. Um,
2: I would not have guessed that. (laughs) I know. Well,
1: I didn't either. Then we had the guy from BlackRock on ETF IQ, and I I, I was like, why would you do this? Advisors are not going to use this. They want to be the deciders. They want to pick the allocation. Why would you do this prepackaged stuff that's normally a 401k? And he said... We're trying to go after people who don't even have 401Ks. Um, and I, when I wrote my Bogle book, one of the things I had at the end was Bogle has done so much for 50% of the world, the people who invest. But there's 50% of America that doesn't invest, and it's hard for them to access. This is a really good idea to try to go after those 50%. I find that to be a noble mission, and it's smart. Get these people – this is a very easy way to get access to very low-cost iShares ETFs. You don't have to do any work. In fact, you could make an argument. I'm not saying give this money to BlackRock, but Tyrone Ross said this in my book, and I put it in there, which is give everybody something like this when they're born, and basically have it accumulate assets all year. I mean, all like all your whole life, and then when you're 21 or 18, you have to pass a financial literacy test, and you can get the money, or you can get you know your account, and it should be pretty pretty full by then, because capital markets work for people, so. Um, again, I really think that's interesting. Will they pull it off? I don't know, because you know, advisors are the predominant market for ETFs. But I think if anybody can pull it off, it's BlackRock because they have so much firepower. Uh, but that, I think those are interesting because, they, again, they have failed. Target-date ETFs have just failed uh, year after year over the past 20 years. No one's been able to really make them work, but um, we'll see. Now that technology is a little better and getting to people might be easier, perhaps
2: yeah, I like that pick. Um, I agree with you. I think the biggest challenge there is going to be that advisor uh, statement risk, that they don't want a single ETF showing up on a client statement. Advisors are the biggest market, so iShares will have to overcome that. Um, besides anything crypto ETF related, what, what would you flag as your ETF story of the year overall? I mean, one,
1: you know what? I got to, you know, it's a toss between money markets, because, but I already did that. So let me go with the cues. This freaking index, man, the QQQs, like on our team, we always talk about it. Because like, Ethan was writing about international uh, last year. Uh, James writing about small caps. Some of our analysts are like, okay, values back. And it, it's all these things have this like five minutes of fame. And the Qs just comes roaring back and just crushes everybody like Godzilla. And it's just, it's astonishing how much this index overpowers everything. We actually looked at a study. Only one manager in the past 15 years has beat the Qs, and it's only because they have 40% waiting to Tesla and another 10% to SpaceX. It's basically an Elon Musk, Musk mutual fund has no diversification. But everything else lost. That's out of thousands of active managers, thousands of, like, smart beta ETFs. Again, it's just astonishing. And the fact that it's so accessible and easy to get is, is amazing. Um, and even SPY looks, you know, pedestrian compared to the Qs. And we always talk about that. We're like, oh, international had a, had a nice week. Oh, that, that'll be fun. The Qs will just come back and kick it. So when will the Qs domination end? I don't know. The value of these American companies and the innovation, it just might be like, it's just so special. That index just happens to attract like the greatest innovation in America. And it's just, it's amazing. So we we keep like joking about the Qs and this wasn't supposed to be the year the Qs came back. Value was supposed to have a 10 year run. You know, they finally came back in 2022, and it was like, okay, value's finally going to have the is going to be the lead the regime, and it only lasted like a year, and the queues came right back, and I think this time was really painful for the value folks, and I'm not sure where we go from here, but uh, certainly I think that was a huge surprise. I don't think anybody, and, and the money was late. The cues and, and the market in particular was up 20 30 percent into May before anyone even started buying it, at least in terms of ETF flows. So it, it shocked everybody.
2: It's amazing. I just pulled up the performance here as we're talking, uh, up about forty-five percent this year. And you know, going back to Ark and Kathy Wood, think about the run that they had in twenty 2020, twenty, in twenty twenty one. And this is, a, and this isn't to pick on Ark, by the way. But you know, they're they're branded around disruptive tech. This is supposed to hold the most promising, innovative companies. And if you go run uh, since inception, QQQ versus ARKK, it's not even close. You know, to your yep. point.
1: It's cute yeah, the, the Q's, Q's, Qs are holding the all the innovation. Place. I used to call arc um, you know the Qs on steroids, but you could also call the Qs uh, ARC, uh the Qs arc with cash. <laughs> I mean, these companies have a ton of cash and that that kind of matters. So I think you know in 2022 a lot of the companies that had cash flow you saw the the cows and cat are huge uh, ETFs cuz they track free cash flow. Cash mattered whereas in 2021 Cash flow wasn't as big of a deal. It was more of a growth era. But the Qs kind of have both. They've got that sort of growth innovation mojo plus a ton of cash. And that, I think that's why they're able to dominate everybody, including, including stuff that has a higher beta than them and a lower beta.
2: I like that. That's a good uh, story of the year in the ETF space. One that I, I don't know that I was thinking of, but makes total sense. Um, OK, very quickly, give us one prediction in the ETF space for 2024. I would say, again, non-crypto ETF related.
1: Sure. Fidelity moves into the top 10. Ooh. Uh, currently, they're 13th, so it's not a crazy prediction. But they've got to get $30 billion, and they've only taken in about $4 billion this year. I just sniff my gut, my spidey sense tells me fidelity's uh going to do some big things in the next twelve months it's time they've waited long enough they've kind of like fidelity is such a monster powerhouse, and they've really tiptoed into the ETF market at this point. I think they saw d f a and probably got jealous, and I think we're going to see some big moves where they just climb the leaderboard quickly. could be even higher than than uh than ten. They there's a point where I think number six or seven where you hit like a little bit of a gap uh, first trust up through Vanguard. I think that's the top six. Those are like on like 100 billion and more, but I think they can get up to potentially even seven uh, with 65 billion. So if they double their assets by 30 billion by the end of next year. They could be 7th, 8th, ninth, somewhere in there, um, and I, that's my prediction.
2: Well, and again, like Dimensional, Fidelity now has that ETF share class filing, which if the SEC could get comfortable with that, that's obviously a huge tailwind in getting uh, you know assets into to ETFs. Um, and
1: th- they should start converting their index mutual funds into ETFs. Do you know they have a trillion dollars in index mutual funds? If, if those were all converted into ETFs today, they'd be bigger than State Street. So their index mutual is, is quietly becoming a behemoth, and so even if some of that converts, which would be, I think, no problem. I think a lot of these people – I know – well, it we won't get into complications, but even if a little portion of that converts – Right. 30 billion. Right. Boom. They're in ninth place.
2: It's amazing. Um, it OK, is. just a few minutes left. Let's let's get to the topic everyone wants to hear about, which is spot Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> or at and and, and look, this
1: the topic we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and I did think Listen, here's here's the good news. I think I'm driving my team crazy. I think I think it's getting a little crazy, but I love it. You love it. Let's geek out.
2: All right. So. Um, I I don't want to regurgitate all of the usual stuff. I think, as you know, I had your colleague James Saifert on uh, again a couple of weeks ago. He did an excellent job laying everything out. So I'd say listeners, go check that out if you want all the detail, the regulatory stuff, et cetera. So so here's what I'll ask you, um, Eric. I guess – First, just give us your current thinking around approval in, in sort of the time frame there. But more importantly, you and I have covered this topic for a long time. And, and as we've talked about, we've had a lot of fun with this out on Twitter. You've made T-shirts around this this topic. There's there's clearly a lot of uh, excitement and, and hype here. Uh, but, but here's what I'd like to have you do. If we just take a step back, remove all the hype, I would love to hear how impactful you think a spot Bitcoin ETF will actually be like, like, try to put that in context, which I think you do a better job of than anyone in the ETF space. Like, what will a spot Bitcoin ETF mean? Yeah,
1: look, at the end of the day, here's what this needs to be looked at. These are bridges. These are bridges from the traditional world of advisors and boomers who have most of the money in America to the whole crypto universe, namely Bitcoin and and Ethereum. And that's all you need to know. These are just essentially bridges. And there's plenty of people who are like, well, I could just, why won't these advisors, you know, why don't they just store it themselves? But they can a lot of times where they don't want to. People like convenience. People trust the ETF. Advisors uh, are obviously risk averse. So they'd rather just give BlackRock the money. We've always said that BlackRock and Vanguard ETFs are the IBM of this era, meaning that in the 80s and 90s, they said you could never get fired for owning IBM if you were an advisor. Which is today, you just you can't. A client could never give you crap for owning an iShares or Vanguard ETF. It's just that it's that uh, prudent of a of a move. So if BlackRock and iShares and other big names are on these ETFs, that's huge. And I'm not saying all the money is going to move over. You know, we don't know how much demand there is. I think there has been a shift though. In 2021, Biddo came out and had a billion dollar trading the first day a billion dollars in two days in flows. We will not see that. To me, that was a fun launching in the midst of a mania. And it was really retail driven. A lot of the trades and the, and the orders were real small. It was a lot of like, it was almost like a like a giant pool of minnows who hadn't been fed in a year. And so that's what Biddle launched into. What What these are going to launch into, those minnows are gone. They either have Coinbase accounts now, if they're really into it, or they're just over crypto. The tourists are out. But... Advisors is like putting your line into a a similar sized pool, but there's only like medium and big sized fish. And anybody who's fished knows that those fish are a little pickier. They take a little longer to come to your hook. That's what this is going to be like. So I don't see this like frenzy of buying on the first day or week. But I do see some big fish, uh, bigger, you know, fish than uh, small retail coming in eventually for certain advisors that want to, you know, a small allocation to crypto. uh, This is how they're going to do it. And so. Uh, my my thoughts is somewhere between 25 and 30 billion after the first year, but a little perhaps an underwhelming first week or two. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong. That's where I think we're we're going to go around because GBTC has 20 billion alone. So even if like some of that comes over, or if that converts instantly, you have 20. But I would almost say that we've seen an extra 10 beyond that, um, and it uh, could be more. But I, I want to keep it conservative because. Just like the weather on my the weather on my Apple iPhone, uh, like people should be pleasantly surprised rather than disappointed. So I would stick with that somewhat conservative estimate for what we'll see when they roll out.
2: Are you and uh, James still at 90 percent odds of approval for January? And I know uh, James did a great job of highlighting this current open window for the 19 B fours, which I tried to recap. Um, and obviously the 19B4s are just half of the process. The other process is having the S1s or the S3 in Grayscale's case approved, but are you still thinking these will actually come to market in January?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, um, I think when it comes to our odds, this gets complicated because let's say the 19B4s are, quote, approved uh, next week. I mean, it's done because the Trading and Markets Division and the Corp. Fin Division, which is the one that approves the s one. They're both reporting to the 10th floor, which is where Gensler sits. So Trading and Markets isn't going to approve it and then the other division not. So once Trading and Markets approves it, I mean, we're pretty much done. And this is where Todd and I are going to have to have probably an argument because, <laughs> will I win my bet if it's approved in 2023 because we all know that it's, it's now just it's now just details to, to be worked out. Okay, when's the S-1 approved? Who's going to go? What date? At that point, it's all just like details. My take so, on that,
2: if, if it's actually approval and not launch, and the 19B4s are approved, let's just say before the end of the year, I think you win that bet. Like, period. I do too. Because the SEC has because, approved it. Yes. Yeah.
1: And I got to go look at the original tweet. There's a tweet somewhere with the wording, and I think I used approval, not launch. And let's face it, the spirit of the bet was that the SEC would come around this cycle, and they did. I think he would probably even admit that. I'd be willing to go Dutch with him just as a show of like, okay, they launched in January or February, but they're approved in November, December. Uh, we'll call it a, 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 what'd you call it? A push in uh, in sports gambling. That'd be a push. Um, that said, I may have to go back. If I find the word approve, I think it's my steak dinner, but I do think we're going to see 19 B4s approved this year. Yes. Um, One, perhaps a little later, but we we haven't seen I, I would like to see the next round of comments come back. We haven't heard anything about that. There've been one round of comments, one round of updated S ones. So, where, when are those going to come? How long will that take? The holidays might make things a little slower as well. But the nineteen B fours, I think, is what we're all watching now. They have till January tenth. So, I would say if they wait till January ninth to approve the <clears throat> nineteen B fours, no doubt Todd wins that bet by nine days. Um, so. I, that's sort of where I stand, um, but like I said, we're still leaving a tiny percentage uh, to get gensenated, which is to have the rug pulled out of some just you know shocking X factor. You know, who knows? Um, so I just want to make sure because when you watch, you, you see a game on ESPN and you track the percentage winning odds. Uh, there's a couple times where a team has five percent chance to win and they, and they actually win. You know, <laughs> like I think the Patriots Falcons threw a ball. I want uh, the Falcons were like ninety eight percent. It can happen. So, <clears throat> but we're we're pretty confident at this point. Everything we've been hearing and seeing uh, speaks to a normal process. The SEC engaging, coming with comments. Normalcy is what you want to see, and we've seen so many normal things this cycle versus again every other cycle with this. We've seen radio silence, radio silence. And then, bam, a denial.
2: Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page. I think the 19B4s will be approved before the end of the year, if not over the next week. And then I expect these products to actually come to market in January. But you're right. Can you imagine if, if, for whatever reason, the SEC reversed course and denies all these things? I mean, if that happens, truly we won't see these until you and I are in the uh, the nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or
3: Gensler's gone. I mean, I don't know
1: what has to happen, um, but... That would be something, um, you know, uh, again, like I said, we we left a little window open for that because we've look, we've been around this for 10 years. And honestly, I think you're you're with me here. People are like, oh, you're just you just think this because you own Bitcoin or you're bullish. And I'm like, not really. Um, the reason I'm pro this and so into this story is the other ways to access Bitcoin are inferior to an ETF. We're just pro-retail investor. And a Bitcoin ETF, a spot Bitcoin ETF, eliminates the stupid roll costs from futures. It eliminates all the high costs on these exchanges. These crypto exchanges made a mint, basically charging high commissions. ETFs kill that. Um, And then, you know, MicroStrategy, which is a stock that people use as a surrogate Bitcoin, that has other variables attached to it. A spot Bitcoin ETF gives investors the best possible deal for something that tracks the price of Bitcoin in a convenient way. And that's all we're pro. And so I I was pro this 10 years ago. So um, this is not about Bitcoin for me. It's about the ETF being the best possible wrapper for retail investors, you know, almost all the time. And in this case, definitely versus what else is out there, not to mention GBTC, which again is, has a, huge third variable in that you can't arbitrage it. So the price veers away from the NAV. It's like a closed-end fund. So, you know, the amount of, like, in in my opinion, this was a little bit of regulatory malpractice not to approve it. Um, And you could say, well, that's all What whataboutism. But what whataboutism matters because we know retail investors use these other methods. That's the reality of the situation. So I just think just get it done, get it out there. The ETF has a great track record. Of doing a bang-up job tracking almost anything you can stuff almost anything in there and it's going to do a great job because of the power of arbitrage and we're going to see the same thing here so again that's largely where my passion and interest and pro uh, pro approval has been more about the etf helping retail get the best possible deal than it has about being pro bitcoin or crypto or anything
2: We're out of time here, but I'm so glad you made that last point because I've said this for a long time. People have conflated my uh, advocacy for Bitcoin ETFs as somehow me saying Bitcoin itself is going to go to the moon. And that's not the case. It's exactly what you highlighted. There are so many suboptimal ways that have been put in front of retail investors to invest in Bitcoin. And and those investors want that Bitcoin exposure. And we've given them many of the, 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 the worst possible ways to get that that access. And we know the ETF vehicle will track the price of Bitcoin very closely, do so at a low cost, et cetera, et cetera. That's always been my advocacy. It's not a, an investment statement on where I think uh, Bitcoin is going to go. But, but Eric, we are going to have to leave it there. I, I need to leave us like two hours next time. Uh, this is always so much fun. Hey, By this, the way, you're not going to bring up. The Eagles and the We're, we're going to have that, to do it on that's Twitter. The reason it came on. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to do that. We're gonna, The let, Eagles are going to win. That's the answer. All right. Uh, let's take that to Twitter. We're going to come up with a good bet. But thank you so much for joining me this week.
1: You got it. Pleasure.
2: That was Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Gabelli Funds. If you would like to learn more about Gabelli Funds ETFs, You can visit m.gabelli.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Liz Simi, co-founder of Honeytree Investment Management. She's going to spotlight the recently launched Honeytree U.S. Equity ETF and also explain their approach to responsible investing. And then John Hooson, managing director of U.S. ETF product at Brown Brothers Harriman, will discuss the impact of ETFs moving to a T-plus-one settlement next year. Until then, have a great week, everyone.